From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. The midterm election saw an historic voter turnout. Who are these new voters and how will they impact the 2020 election? We'll ask Alex Padilla, California's Secretary of State, Mindy Romero, the director of the California Civic Engagement Project at USC's Price School of Public Policy, and John Myers of the LA Times. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Voter participation is the bedrock of a representative democracy. And while voter turnout in the midterms was way up compared to previous years, voter turnout in the United States remains much lower than that of most developed nations. Improving voter turnout has been the focus of our guest, California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you, Mark. And uh, I mean, I got to say, you, you, you put it perfectly. The strength of our democracy depends on as many eligible people registering and voting. So no. we're so on the upswing here in California. So how do we do? So general voter turnout uh, in the 2018 midterms, how do we do? Uh, we broke records. It was the highest uh, registration and highest turnout for a midterm election since 1982. Wow. Uh, so nearly doubled the number of ballots cast from uh, 2014, just four years prior. Uh, so I like the trend that we're on. Yeah, it was, it was huge. I mean, a lot of people we saw voting were particularly young people uh, and typically various ethnic groups that traditionally don't really turn out that much. They turned out this time. Well, absolutely. Both uh, demographic subsectors, uh, counties, and the state as a whole in near presidential participation numbers. Right, so you expect a little bit lower in midterms, but you expect it to be higher in presidential elections. So, so the numbers were pretty, pretty impressive. Um, what do you attribute this in increase in voter turnout during the midterms? Well, aside from a very aggressive uh, Secretary of State, <laughs> okay. uh, a couple of things. I mean, look, it, it's, uh, we'd be lying if we didn't say the national political climate right now has everybody paying attention. There's people around the state and around the country who are maybe thrilled as to what they're hearing from Washington. There's a lot of people I know that are afraid, angry, you name it, about what they're hearing out of Washington. But the point is they're paying attention, they're aware, and they're ready to be engaged. And I see that translating both in voter registration uh, and in voter turnout. Yeah, but you, there, you, there are some things that you did, or you've been involved with. Motor it, Voter, it, Voter Choice Act. So in uh, addition to that, yes, obviously leveraging public policy to make it easier for mm -hmm. eligible people to be registered to vote and making it easier for people to cast their ballot. So for voter registration, it's not just online registration anymore, automatic registration through DMV. California allows pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. And get this, well, more than 300,000 young people pre-registered. You know, that's very interesting you say that because people say, well, who cares? They can't vote. But actually, you should care because voting is kind of it's, uh, something you repeat, right? If you start doing it, it becomes a habit. Right. And so the earlier you get people involved, the more likely they're going to be voters. Right. And so I think we'll hit, you know, 500,000 by next year's primary uh, with well more than 100,000 turning 18 before then being able to cast ballots. And then, of course, county by county, we're changing how we administer elections, giving voters more I choices wanna, of when, where. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Uh, you, you, you anticipated my question of the voter choice <laughs> The Voter, Cho Voter Choice Act. Um, can you briefly describe to our audience uh, how it changed the way elections are conducted and what impact it's had in the five California counties that it was tried out in, I guess, in the 2018 midterms? Right. So the legacy way of uh, voting is you have two options. You can vote by mail, and you know the majority of Californians have been voting by mail for several elections. And it's now. trending up. 
and it's trending up, or you can vote in person, but the voting in person option is pretty limited. Your polling place close to where you live, election day only, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Under the Voters' Choice Act, county by county, uh, the voters in that county automatically receive their ballot in the mail a month before the election, and they have options for how to return the ballot. Through the mail, no more stamps necessary, return postage prepaid, uh, ballot drop boxes are installed throughout the county, and any voter can deliver their ballot to any box convenient to them in the weeks leading up to the election. Or if you need that in-person experience or assistance, modernizing polling places into what are known as vote centers, and any voter has the option of going to any vote center in the county convenient to them over the course of 11 days. It seems like you are literally taking away every excuse not to a vote. Absolutely. One more. You know, no more missing the registration deadline. Vote mm -hmm. centers offer same-day registration. So uh, getting more people to vote, doing away with provisional ballots, by and large, it's just uh, all around much better. Yeah, some significant improvements. So what goals do you have for the March 2020 California presidential primary election or the November 2020 presidential election? Is the voter turnout going to be at record levels again? Oh, I think through the roof. You know, the voter registration continues to surge. We uh, recently announced in California more than 20 million Californians on the voter rolls. Uh, I think we'll be at 21 million next year, uh, maybe even closer to 22. Uh, but most importantly, we're hoping that every registered voter turns out and votes both in March, early primary, very consequential for the presidential nomination process, and again in November. California's a player. Um, thank you very much, Secretary Padilla. Well, up next, who are these new voters? A conversation with Mindy Romero from the California Civic Engagement Project at USC's Price School of Public Policy. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, in the 2000 election cycle, there was a lot of speculation regarding voter turnout. Specifically, would Latinos, Asian Americans, and young people turn out? As it happens, voter turnout for the 2018 midterm election was the highest since 1982. However, despite the higher turnouts, disparities in voter registration and turnout persist among uh, whites, between whites rather, and traditionally unrepresented groups. So what are the numbers? We're fortunate to have someone who would know that answer, answer those questions. That is Mindy Romero with the California Civic Engagement Project at USC's Price School of Public Policy. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so to what extent are we seeing higher vo voter turnout in the state's historically un underrepresented groups? Well, we did see higher turnout. We saw, as you said, a very good year for turnout overall in California, and that meant that historically underrepresented groups also increased their turnout. Uh, for Latinos, instead of, well, for the total population, it was 50% eligible turnout. That's turnout of those that are citizen adults. Mm -hmm. uh, for Latinos, it was... That's a pretty good turnout for a midterm. For a midterm. Yeah, it might not sound so great for folks that want to see higher participation, but for a midterm, that's very good. Well, compared to the last midterm, it's an improvement, for sure. Yes. Okay. Um, and as you stated, highest since 1982. Right. So uh, for Latinos, it was 36% of mm -hmm. eligible voter turnout. Asian Americans, 33%. Young people, a lot of speculation around the youth vote, particularly this election. So those age 18 to 24, their turnout was 27.5%. Huge jumps. Huge jumps. And I was looking at your numbers. If and you look at, yeah. Yeah, time. I mean, you, you're saying Latinos are at 36%. The last midterm, 17%. 17%. Um, and then Asian Americans, same thing. Eight, up from 18%. Young people, again, that age 18 to 24, only 8% eligible turnout in the most recent comparable election, 2014 midterm general. Right. Now 27.5. So big jumps. Huge jumps. Big uh, jumps. Yeah. Um, so uh, what about this difference between voter turnout among men and women? And also, does, does it vary by age or ethnicity? What the men and women divide here? It, it does, uh, quite significantly. So for a very long time now, uh, we have uh, tracked, uh, those of us that do this sort of work or research, we understand that women vote in higher numbers than men, typically a few percentage points more. 
If you break it up by race ethnicity, though, um, it's even more significant. So um, Latinos and Asian Americans, uh, sorry, Latinos and African Americans particularly have, um, women have a little bit wider gap than, um, than white women, mm -hmm. right, with men. Um, if you look at age, it's really striking because most of that gender difference is actually driven by youth. So young women have a much larger turnout uh, gap mm. than young men, and actually older women, generally speaking, don't actually vote in higher numbers. Um, when you get past 65, particularly past 75, yeah. Um, Just speculating. So it's young women that are that are driving the gender gap. Could that gap. be the Me Too movement having an effect? Well, this has been the gender gap has been happening for for a few decades. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things we're looking at is to understand in 2018 and going forward if if maybe that might change even more dramatically. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, you know, the the trends are fairly stable, um, but they're there and they're significant. So when we talk about really uh, the power of any particular group, right, when they turn out, women are typically driving those numbers more than mm -hmm. men. And as oh, I said, actually young women, even though they make up a smaller share, they're the ones that are helping to make women overall have higher turnout. You're seeing a lot more women candidate, female candidates too out there for all, all offices. Um, mm -hmm. So what about geography? Does that play a role in, in uh, turnout? Always does. So California is a very large, diverse state. We know that when we talk about a 50% eligible turnout rate mm -hmm. for everyone, for instance, there are quite significant differences across the state by county and certainly by other types of districts, congressional districts, supervisory districts, whatever you want to, pretty much you name it. Um, in this election that just passed in November, uh, we saw that many, many of the typical players that are usually really high turnout, like Marin, were high again. Right. What was really interesting to look at was, since we know we had such a big increase overall for the state over 2014, mm -hmm. Uh, were there areas that increased more? And right. there were. So yeah. counties like Santa Cruz, um, Los Angeles, um, San Mateo all had some of the highest or had the highest uh, percentage point increase. But what um, I was just wondering, what about the, the valleys, the San Joaquin Valley? Because there were some, uh, some would say, upset elections uh, in the San Joaquin Valley uh, where some Republicans lost to some Democrats, particularly mm -hmm. one, I think it was Senate District 14, uh, where uh, Senator uh, Hurtado won over Andy Vidak. A lot of people were very surprised by that. Yeah, so if you look at the competitive, seven or so mm -hmm. competitive districts that everyone across the country was watching in California in 2018, um, they did, by and large, have really high uh, increases in turnout as well. They didn't necessarily all rank uh, as the highest turnout amongst their fellow congressional mm -hmm. districts. Uh, so the, in other words, there actually was an interesting, a lot of room to grow. So I feel like if you look at Valadeo, 21, right? right? right. Um, That's the same. There's a lot of overlap between that and the Senate district that also was kind of yeah. upset. So they yeah. were ranked actually in the bottom uh, quarter of uh, turn for turnout amongst all fellow congressional districts. If you look at Latino turnout, mm. really high increase, but still overall uh, one of the lowest um, congressional yeah. districts for Latinos. So actually, um, some of the driving forces there could have been even more of a dramatic, I think, change. So are we seeing... Um, the 2018 show us more of a uh, representative electorate? Yes, and, and one of the key ways that we look at that, because you can slice the numbers a lot of different ways, is to look at the percent of actual voters. So the, that pie of voters that actually cast a ballot, did Latinos, did Asian Americans, did young people, any underrepresented group actually make up a larger share? And when we talk about underrepresentation, we're talking about numeric underrepresentation. So did their share of the pie of voters in that election, did it equal or get closer to 
um, their share of the eligible voter population. And in 2018, that happened by and large. So hmm. the gap narrowed. It didn't dr uh, narrow dramatically, but it narrowed a little bit. Um, young okay. people were 7% of the electorate. Latinos were 21% of all voters almost the same as they were in 2016. Huh, interesting. Well, up next, we're going to talk about uh, what this means for election, the election in 2020, that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hedler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about voter turnout in the 2018 election and what it may mean for the 2020 election with Mindy Romero, with the California Civic Engagement Project at USC's Price School of Public Policy. So uh, what are some of the lessons we learned from 2018 uh, regarding voter turnout? We learned a lot. Uh, first off, if you, if the context, you know, is right, coupled with really strong mobilization efforts, we can see some very impressive, historically impressive numbers. I think it also tells us that the stage may be set uh, for a very good turnout in 2020. Uh, it's still you know, very I, early. You know, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, do you think it's past prologue? Uh, do you think we're going to see? Now, remember, this is a presidential election, so we expect higher turnout anyway in 2020. Of course. Um, but are you going to see like that trend line continue with voter turnout? Well, number one, you're right. Turnout will be higher no matter what because it's a presidential. The question always is, is it high for a comparative election? You're comparing mm -hmm. it to mm -hmm. other presidential years. And I think a lot of the factors that made not only this past election in 2018 higher turnout, produced higher turnout, um, they, it, they produced higher turn in 2018, also in 2016, and I think there looks like they're going to be present in 2020. So um, I think many of us are expecting a, a good turnout year. Also, something historically unique is happening here. We are seeing now, this higher turnout in what looks like potentially three elections is going to produce really a cohort of voters that maybe to some degree, probably likely wouldn't have voted prior, except voted because of the context that we're in right now. And that's kind of a learned behavior, isn't it? I mean, you vote once, you then, earlier exactly. you vote, and it just it becomes a learned behavior. Exactly. So if they voted in 2016, voted in 2018 to some degree, then, um, you know, they're more likely already to vote in 2020. But also, maybe beyond 2020, uh, developing this, you know, hyper-propensity voters, if you will, are three out of four, typically, as they're measured. That's three elections in a row. Um, mm -hmm. And whenever we see kind of an exciting bump in turnout for historically underrepresented groups, it usually is just that. It's a bump, and then it goes away. Right. Um, we may be looking at something historically very unique where we have a sustained bump, if you will. Right. Then the question is, after 2020, then what? how do we keep it? So right. I think many of those folks, because it is a learned behavior, uh, they're going to be more likely to vote beyond 2020, but also how can we take what we learn and apply it to future elections to keep them, to make sure we keep them. Do you think we're going to see that gap um, shrink, continue to shrink between California's demographics and its voters? So there's this, this disconnect? Yeah. Um, we already saw it a little bit in 2018. Right. Again, the trick is to maintain it. Uh, I, I think it's possible. I mean, it really comes down to expectations. How big of a decrease do you want to see? Are we going to see all of a sudden, uh, in 2020, for instance, a representative electorate? No, the disparities that are entrenched in our in our electoral system are are just that they're entrenched, mm -hmm. and we make incremental progress. Um, even now, the numbers that we're talking about for 2018, um, they're great, they're impressive, but um, they still, in the end, mean that we're still falling pretty far short of having full numeric representation. So, so I, I'm probably asked this in one way or another already, but is there? Can you see a trend emerging of increased uh, voter participation, or is this just a kind of uh, 
a function of the current political climate. I mean, Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, one thing he has done yeah. is certainly got people engaged and focused on, on politics and voting. I think when I was looking at 2016, we, we expected probably a bump, right? Mm -hmm. And then again, it would go away. Uh, I, I'm excited about the potential of this maintaining going forward. Just the fact that we will have folks that will be interested in the, elect in, in, in the election system, actually participating um, in, in, you know, in a regular fashion over two or three elections, again, that makes them more likely that they're going right. to come out again. Um, it's always a little bit um, iffy when uh, any type of increase is based around, and it's not fully in this case, but when a large part of the increase, the context is driven by one person or one set of issues. Because, again, typically, the mo not, it's not just that people's interest goes away, it's the mobilization, the money, the, right. all that work around getting people out to vote can also go away to some degree. The trick is, I think we're set up really nicely to see a, a longer-term um, uh, pattern of higher engagement, well, but we have to do the work. Let's hope, let's hope so. We want people to be engaged. So what are the political implications for 2020? A conversation with LA Times political reporter John Myers in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepper with the Maddie Institute. So what does the 2018 turnout signal for the 2020 election? Our guest is John Myers, LA Times Sacramento Bureau Chief. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. Happy to be here. So voter turnout uh, in 2018 began to mirror uh, California's demographics. If that trend continues, Older white males are likely to have relatively less influence, and younger and ethnic voters relatively more influence. Um, what do you see as the main political implications of all that? Well, let's say at the very outset of this, Mark, if that happens, it's nothing short of um, historic in the state because those two numbers have been so disconnected for so long, the demographics versus the electorate, the exclusive electorate, as some researchers have called that older, whiter electorate. Mm -hmm. um, I think the implications clearly are, are good for Democrats. They're not good for Republicans. I think Republicans have had difficulty um, attracting younger, diverse voters. Um, but the real thing is, is getting people to the polls. And 2018 was an example of finally turning that. 2020 is a presidential year, so yes, you would think it, but then what? And then if it's a one-time bump and changes in 2022, mm -hmm. I mean, people have to get into the habit of voting. And I think that's a real key. Yeah, it seems like it's trending in that direction. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll see. So Democrats have had a lot of success in 2018. I mean, they've got supermajorities in both houses of the legislature, every constitutional office. Frankly, there's not a lot left for them to win. Um, <laughs> and so uh, how do they really affect public policy? I think the Republicans in particular were, how are they going to do that? Are they going to be focusing on propositions, you think, in 2020? Because... Well, I mean, I think you, you could see some move by the legislature onto the ballot. You've seen the governor talk about some of his interest in getting involved in some of what the 2020 ballot's going to look like. Um, I, I don't know that they go through the ballot measure. I think it's simply a, a desire so far from what we've seen to show California is going down this path, the United States in general is going down this path, pick our path. I think the more that they do in Sacramento, I think that's what they're going to run on. It's a record, so to speak. Um, well, I still want to focus on this theme of, of propositions. There's some yep. controversial propositions that are going to be in the ballot. Uh, one is this attempt to amend Prop 13 to allow the taxing of commercial and industrial properties at market value, known as split role. Do you think that uh, 
that it makes passage of, of more uh, progressive propositions like uh, split role more or less likely, given what you saw in 2018, and turn out going forward into 2020? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know that there's any uh, easy answer to it, and that's the one I alluded to a moment ago. The governor says he wants to engage on, wants to see if there's a better way to deal with it. Of course, he wants to talk about the taxation, taxation system writ large, not necessarily just uh, property taxes. Um, there is a lot of speculation right now whether the electorate in California, which we've been talking mm -hmm. about, has decidedly moved left, whether it has moved left on taxes, moved left on criminal justice. Uh, if that's true, yeah, the door is open for things here. But you and I know from the old days, right, taxation is a tough thing in California. <laughs> I think a case still has to be made. Oh, what about any other propositions you see popping up in, in, in 2020? I think uh, criminal justice, we've got a, an effort to undo Governor Jerry Brown's Prop 57, which was more parole for people uh, in prison of crimes that are considered nonviolent, but could be very serious mm -hmm. crimes. Uh, there's some groups that say that went too far. They want to roll that back. They have a chance to be on the ballot, it looks like, certainly. Um, it's going to be really interesting. And all of that layered over a presidential year and that presidential politics can be fascinating. You know, there's a lot more people registered in the new motor voter law as independent, not NPP, mm -hmm. uh, no, no political preference, no party preference. 52% compared to 33% who register another way. Do you think this is a one-off um, or an acceleration of an ongoing trend that we're already seeing? Well, I think it's partly a little of both. I think it's definitely, there's a trend there. I think even people, and you know, we should be really careful. People who are no party preference, it's, it's a bit of a bad name, I would say. They have a preference. They'll pick a Democratic ballot or a Republican mm -hmm. ballot. They just don't want to identify that as the party. More people are disassociating California from parties. NPP certainly shows it. The motor voter system in particular, I think, has a, has a method that highlights the fact that I don't want to join a political party. Party, depending on the way the words are questioned when you punch them in on the screen. And I think that might have helped that. But maybe it's a truer um, view of what people really want. Yeah, I wonder if that's the default, you know, the motor voter default goes to NPP. Uh, you see it more prominently, I think, than you do on a registration card. I think that could be part of it, but we, we don't really completely but those, know but, yet. But NPP, typically, don't they trend Democratic as a general rule? Well, yeah, because they, they, they reflect the electorate. I think if you talk to smarter people than me, they'll tell you that if you break down the NPPs, most of them vote Democratically, just like the plurality of California's electorate is Democratic. Again, people have preferences. They just don't want to be part of a party. Republicans are suffering from that more than anyone. It's kind of a, a societal thing. People don't want to be part of institutions, it seems, these days, whether it's trade unions or parties or, or whatever. Make their own mind up. All right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank our guests, uh, John Myers with the LA Times, California Secretary of State Alex Padilla, and Mindy Romero from USC's Price School of Public Policy. If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can sign up for the Maddie Daily by looking on our website at maddieinstitute.com. From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. The 2018 election was a landslide victory for Democrats in California, capturing every statewide constitutional office and supermajorities in both houses of the legislature. What are they going to do with this political opportunity? We're going to ask two newly elected state senators who helped create the Democratic supermajority in California, State Senator Ana Caballero from Salinas and State Senator Melissa Hurtado from Sanger. Welcome to the Matter Report. So, um, Senator Caballero, let me start with you first. Education. Big expense in the state budget. Uh, growing concern that maybe uh, California schools at all levels aren't producing the number of students that we need to compete in the global economy. Um, is this issue that requires more or less state action? 
it actually requires more state action. I think there's some great opportunities to uh, make some major investments, but the number one priority in my mind is early childhood education. What we know is that the brain develops fully of a young baby with, by the age of three, and so early childhood education is critically important for the success of our students. Pre-K, important? Absolutely, and uh, just to give you a little bit more insight into Senate District 14, uh, we have communities still that have a, a, a shortage of teachers, so we definitely need more um, uh, you know, investment in the Central Valley and Senate District 14 for teachers when the, you know, to make sure that we don't have that shortage anymore, uh, but also high schools. And uh, I know the uh, community of Lamont doesn't have a high school, and those are the things that we need to be looking at as well. Yeah, um, and, and teachers, you're seeing these strikes all over the country. Teacher, teacher pay is, is a big issue. Um, let me let me switch to another gear here. So we went through a lot of topics pretty fast. So, uh, Senator Todd, I'm going to ask you about, about health care coverage for, for Californians. Um, and a lot of people are now covered that weren't covered in the past, mm-hmm. but still there's a large segment. I want to say 3 million people that mm-hmm. still are, are uncovered. A lot of those are undocumented. Uh, who would you target and how much would it cost to, to cover everyone for health care? Well, currently 93% of Californians are covered by mm-hmm. some sort of health coverage. Uh, and, you know, for us, it, for me, it's a matter of where the money is coming from uh, in order to expand health care. But I think in the Central Valley, we really need to start having the discussion of access to uh, hospitals, access to health centers, and the shortage of doctors. Right. There's just so much more to it uh, than just uh, you know health care for all or coverage for all. We in the Central Valley need health centers, hospitals, right. if you have, doctors. If you have insurance but you don't have a doctor to go see, that, that's right. a problem. That's a big issue in the Valley, right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Senator Kambi, let me ask you this. Immigration. We're going to switch gears fast here. Um, that's predominantly a federal issue. Does the state have any role here? It, well, the state has uh, taken a very... Uh, large leadership role. Um, we do have a role, and the reason is is because our economic um, security depends on us having a good, healthy workforce. Um, immigrants have been key to helping us to deliver a whole bunch of services, whether they be um, in the uh, service industry or in the agricultural industry, which is what we're concerned in about. In construction. Um, and so uh, the more that we can protect immigrants and have them feel like they're part of the community, the better and safer our communities are going to be. So we've taken a very active role. Senator Tato, you want to add anything to that? I absolutely agree with Senator Caballero. Absolutely. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, uh, Senator Tato. Um, public safety, another big issue, crime and, you know, police and fire and, and all of that stuff when it comes to, to public safety. Uh, what specific legislative actions would you like to see done to address those issues? You know, arrests are down, are down right? Fires are up. Um, what do you want to see done in public safety? So in Senate District 14, uh, one of the things that I did last year um, I did ride-alongs with different police departments. I tried to do one with every police department uh, that in this in each city of the district, uh, but I did a total of ten, and it taught me a lot about the needs of of you know for, for uh, public safety, the public safety needs of the district. I think we really we need more investment in that area. And we just we'll haven't more, really looked more, at more it. More police officers, uh, more preventive programs. We need we need more police officers. We have growing uh, communities that need uh, updates and upgrades to uh, to the department both uh, for police and for fire. Uh, the same is true with our, 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 you know, our county jails. And we don't have... Uh, yeah, county jails have yeah. taken on a lot of responsibility since yeah. realignment. What do you like to see in, in public safety? Well, there's, there is a, a, a real investment in infrastructure that's necessary. But, I, but I'll tell you, the big issue um, in, all over the state is uh, fire um, and fire prevention and the ability for us actually to protect the life and liberty of people. Right. Um, we have 148 million dead or dying trees uh, that the bark beetle has devastated right. our, our forests. We need to get in, clear it out, and we need to 
take all of that fuel and use it for something. And so I'm a big supporter of biomass. Yeah, and some of the people are talking about the situation is only going to get worse with climate change. That's right. Um, so that's another issue. Uh, let me ask you this, Senator Caballero. Unemployment rates, very low in the state. That's good news. However, the poverty rate, kind of high in California, high. particularly a problem in a place like the San Joaquin Valley. What specific policies do you want to see the state enact to address poverty? Well, it's, it's a double, it's, it's, it's a two or threefold. First of all is we've invested in earned income tax credits, um, which is money going back into the pockets of hardworking uh, uh, families. We're going to look at that and try to expand it this year. Um, there are other tax measures that are designed to put money back into people's pocket. But what people really want is a good job. And so investing in the, um, in the areas, in the sectors where there's an opportunity for people to get a good job be able to stay in the valley and contribute to the community is kind really of, important. Kind of comes full circle back to education. But Absolutely. You know, one of the parts of poverty, one of the drivers is housing costs. Yes. Anything we can do, uh, Senator Hurtado, about, about housing costs in California? I think there's a lot that we can do, and we need to come together and, you know, work on that and figure it out. Uh, and to me, it's about affordable housing, uh, for, you know, for, for those that need it. But it's also about ownership, too. Let, I think. let me ask you this. It's kind of a hot potato issue. Um, so you may want to decline to answer, but what about CEQA reform? I'm on board with that. I think How do you feel about that? I am too. I have a couple of bills that I'm going to be working on. <laughs> I think some Republicans yep. might be willing to work with you on that. I think, I so. think Senator Caballero and I have a lot in common. Yep. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, up next, we're going to get the Republican position yeah. on those issues. This conversation, that conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Republicans are in a bit of a tough spot. Not only do Democrats hold every constitutional statewide office, they also hold supermajorities in both houses of the California legislature. Given that political reality, what can Republicans do to effectuate public policy? Our guest is one of the few newly elected Republicans, State Senator Andrews Borges from Fresno. Welcome to the Maddie Report. It's great to be on the show. This is my first time. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being here. So we're going to zip through a lot of topics. Um, so let's talk about education, biggest part of the state budget. Are there any education issues that Republicans might be able to find some support with moderate, moderate Democrats to get something done? Uh, certainly. I think uh, uh, one of the most important priorities that I think that I have and others I believe should have as well coming from the uh, Republican parties is making certain that we have a healthy degree of pragmatism uh, with which we're approaching the job and finding the common denominators that certainly exist amongst uh, uh, folks in the Valley and beyond, even with the other party, Build upon those common denominators. Okay. That's, yeah. that's, that's key in my opinion. One of the things that the, that, uh, the Democrats, some Democrats have been talking about are increased transparency and accountability when it comes to local control funding formula. I'd assume that you'd probably support something along those lines. I've always been a proponent of uh, local control. Obviously, transparency and accountability mm -hmm. are, uh, uh, are things that we should always pursue. But I think uh, in terms of the, the common ground that Republicans and Democrats can agree upon, uh, vocational training. And that's really big in, in, in our neck of the woods, right. uh, especially with uh, uh, the percentage of, uh, of, of folks that are below the poverty line, uh, some of the difficulties of upward mobility. So not everyone necessarily needs to go to college, even though I've been, I'm an educator myself and right. just like you believe in higher education. Mm -hmm. We also want to make certain that education is, is applicable uh, so that... Yeah, uh, yeah the vocational training is, is, a, is a big deal, particularly in, in inland California. Let's talk about health care. Um, so Governor Newsom has talked about controlling prescription costs by having all the state agencies collaborate and coordinate their purchase of prescription drugs. drugs. What do you think about that? Well, um, I represent Senate District 8. And for the listeners, this is one of those very large... Uh, yeah, geographically, uh, it's huge. It's huge. It's Death Valley to Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So that covers... Uh, 11, all, all are parts of 11 counties. So there's a lot of folks that I have to, uh, to, uh, to listen to and, uh, and work on uh, their behalf. 
one of the things that is really key that I've heard from folks, especially with our aging population, the cost of pharmaceuticals. That is really uh, a, a challenge. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think um, we're still looking at what the details are uh, about uh, uh, bargaining powers and uh, uh, making certain that uh, we leverage our, our bargaining position with, with uh, certain uh, producers. I think that that warrants a, a close looking into. Um, I'm a little skeptical, however, of making certain that this is an automatic segue into single payer or universal uh, coverage. Yeah, one step at a time. Well, let's, let's talk about uh uh, immigration. It's a federal issue, but undocumented workers are really important for agriculture, construction, service sector. Absolutely. What's your, what's your kind of feeling about immigration issues in, in the state of California? What should or should not they be doing? Well, I think it's important that we as California legislators appreciate our role. And you're right, this is a federal issue, mm -hmm. but these are our constituents that we have to work with uh, uh, every day. Um, I've always been a big fan of making certain that we had uh, strong uh, work permit uh, opportunities because in the agricultural areas, in the service industries, you name it, we rely on, on th this type of labor. Right. So we would encourage, obviously, comprehensive immigration reform. And, the, and I think what, what's important is that even though we have strong, even though the Democrats have strong uh, philosophical and policy differences with the leaders in Washington, uh, that we not forget what we're fighting for. Mm -hmm. And finding that common ground and being constructive in that discussion is key. I want to ask you about uh, crime and public safety issues. Um, do you think there are any criminal justice uh, proposals that you've heard from the Democrats you might be able to support? Well, I think we need to go back and make certain that we revisit Prop 47 and 57. Simply reclassifying uh, uh, sentencing or, uh, or, or crimes into different categories has not proven to be effective. So we've given, we've given the impression that uh, uh, the, the inmate population might go down, but I think uh, if you talk to folks in law enforcement, as I have, um, by and large, they do not like Prop 47 and Prop 57. Yeah, the, the arrest rates have gone down. I think, I think the statistic I read was 58% uh, since 1990. But then the question is, how, how does public safety feel about that? And then there is some, some, some disagreement. Let me ask you this one last question. We've only got about 30 seconds left in the segment. A lot to cover. Poverty, all right? So the typical issue is they say, listen, the, the best poverty program is a job. Well, unemployment rates are really low. So what's the Republican approach to deal with poverty and wage inequality or the stagnation of wages? Well, I think the California dream uh, has been slipping away from a lot of folks for a long time. And we look at Is that a housing issue? It's affordable yeah. housing is, is a major component of that. But uh, in, uh, in Governor Newsom's State of the State address, I was very excited and encouraged to hear that he is, is wanting the legislature to put forward CEQA reform when it comes to housing. Here, here, very we, go, excited here we go about again. That. I guess we're gonna, we'll talk more about that later. Um, so we're also going to talk about some other big issues confronting the state. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with newly elected Republican State Senator Andres Borges from Fresno about some of the big issues confronting the state and the valley. Water, that's a big issue. Quantity and quality. Um, issues probably nowhere bigger than in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, is there anything the Republicans have in terms of a water solution that could pass? Well, I think we, we understand that uh, Governor Newsom has replaced the uh, chairperson on the water board. Mm -hmm. That, I think, was a very strong signal that uh, he was sending to the Valley. And we were very appreciative of that because we think our water issues are, are, have been held up over there. But I think uh, there are a number of, there are two items that are being, that are moving through the legislature right now. Mm -hmm. And I think both of them have opportunities. It's a matter of wordsmithing. Can you give me quickly certain. what those two are? Well, I think one of them being proposed right now is a 2% uh, um, reliable funding source out of the general fund 
uh, for water infrastructure, water upgrades, storage, deliverables. You know, they lost that bond measure. That would have been $750 million exactly. for the Fry and Canal. So, but Fry and Kern Canal is, should be a recipient uh, project. Mm -hmm. You know, the subsidence issues, right. all the infrastructure demands, clean drinking water for uh, rural areas and uh, in disadvantaged communities. Them, these are key. These are key. Uh, yeah, there's, there's bipartisan, I think, certain in terms of yeah. water quality. That, that's a big issue. Let's kind of flip to another issue, air quality. Uh, big issue statewide. And that, probably, again, maybe even a bigger issue for the San Joaquin Valley, which had some of the worst air in the nation. Um, how do you, what can be done to help those areas that are adversely affected by poor air quality? Well, this has been a perennial challenge because geographically the valley is in a bowl and everything that comes in tends not to leave. So this is, mm -hmm. this is a real difficult challenge. One that has become more acute over the last year or so with the wildfires. Uh, everything kind of settles in, 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 in into right. the valley. We've heard about uh, um, you know multimodal transportation, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we do not have the density uh, of folks that live in the area that like a San Francisco or an LA. But, you know that's that's a really interesting. Uh, it's true. Uh, you need densities for for uh, for multimodal for for rapid transit those kinds of things. But is it does it have to do with the way we build in the valley? Do we need to go up instead of out? Do we need to go up instead build, of out? Build, you know, higher density. So well, I think for, first and foremost, we have a housing crisis. Right. We have to make certain that we drive the prices down so that they become more affordable. And one of the things that adds to that, of course, is CEQA reform, right, right. which is what I mentioned earlier. We're very excited about that. So increasing the stock that is available, whether it is out or up, I think is going to be key to making housing more affordable, dealing directly with poverty. Et yeah, I was, I, was, I was reading something where it said that they're actually building twice as many homes in the valley they are on the coast. Unfortunately, a lot of those houses need to be built on the coast. That's where the, the real squeeze is on housing. Let, let me, I, we're going a lot of things sure. really quicker, so I'm going to zip through another one. Really easy issue, state budget. Some of the small little thing. Um, you know, taxes, very volatile uh, revenue structure in, in California. Is there a revenue neutral compromise that you think the Republicans could get behind to make the California tax structure, you know, less volatile? Well, if you look at the, uh, how the 1% of, t of, uh, of taxpayers uh, uh, accounts for the largest percentage in our tax base in terms of property taxes, we know that there's a profound imbalance. Uh, and this is something that w w has been troubling for some time. Now we're hearing about pr uh, split roles and how they want to undo, some folks want to undo prop, the protections afforded under Prop For commercial and industrial for property. commercial. Mm -hmm. My concern, of course, is that when, if we do that, we are going to send a lot of small and medium-sized businesses out of California as we have been for some time. So I think well, that's gonna be a, are, this gonna is going to be a tough one. Very big issue in 2020. Let me ask you one last question, and that is, um, you know, Democrats have got these supermajorities we were talking about earlier. Uh, frankly, little incentive to compromise. Um, how do Republicans... I don't, I don't agree with that. Okay. I, in fact, I think uh, the, from what I've experienced, and mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm a freshman. Right. Uh, Idealistic. But, I, but I've come in with a healthy degree of pragmatism. Mm -hmm. What I'm noticing now is that because the supermajorities exist, that there are a lot of uh, folks uh, in, in, in the, the Democratic Party that are looking to find more centrist opportunities, to build coalitions because the, their left flank tends to be more progressive. Right. And so working amongst uh, the, the, the Central Valley legislators, Republicans and Democrats, we're all Central Valley. That yeah, that, I yes, think they used is, to call it, used to call it a valley crat, and exactly. there really is. There's not a lot, huge difference between a valley Democrat sometimes and a moderate Republican. And Democrats are not monolithic. That's true. That's very true. Big difference between a Bay Area Democrat and a Valley Democrat. Yeah. We well, want to thank Senator uh, Seat Senator Andrews Borges for joining us. Up next, the Democratic response on these issues. This conversation, that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with uh, two newly elected Democratic state senators, State Senator Anna Caballero uh, from Salinas and State Senator Melissa Hurtado from Sanger. So, Senator Hurtado, I want to ask you about water, a big issue, uh, not just in the state, but, but in, in the Valley as well. What would you like to see uh, the state do to address the issues of water quality and quantity? Well, we definitely need money for water quality and um and infrastructure uh, and making sure that we improve the infrastructure, the infrastructure that we have already, um, like the uh, Frank Kern Canal. Right. There was some money in the, in the water bond that didn't pass. Uh, that was like $750 million that was mm-hmm. going to be there to fix that. That money is no longer, it's not there. And that still has to be addressed. But it's extremely important, and we got to make sure that we find ways to get the money to... Yeah, one, one thing that people don't realize is it, that infrastructure, because of subsidence, it's, it's cracking right. and sinking, that it, it doesn't, and not enough water flows then, it loses its efficiency and flow rate. So that, that's kind of important. What do you want to see done on water? Well, there's no question that we need uh, resources in order to be able to clean up the mm-hmm. contaminated water, and we need a process to be able to do it. We have a million people that, when they turn on their tap, are receiving water that they can't drink or bathe in. And we got to take care of that you know, immediately. Some of this, though, is, you know, nitrates is a big part of that problem. Part of, part of that is it's, it's legacy. Um, you know, farmers have cleaned up their act, you know, since long ago. Right. We've got the legacy, the leftovers of nitrates. What do we do with that? Well, I'm, I mean, a big part of it is, is agriculture has to play as part, as part of the solution. Uh, but we also have significant contamination of naturally occurring mineral, minerals. Mm-hmm. Chromium six, arsenic. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to clean that up too. And so uh, I think it's a partnership between the private industry and also the uh, the state. Yeah, and it really it really affects some of the towns in the valley. Some of those that's poor exactly towns. Right. They, they just it's amazing to think that they don't have clean drinking water. Uh, yep. but, it, but that's the case. Uh, so Senator Caballero, let me ask you this: um, air quality, big issue, uh, you know, in California. Again, bigger issue maybe in the valley. What does the state need to do to address that issue without impacting the economy adversely? Well, the reality of the situation is that a majority of the air pollution that's created is not created in the valley. It's created in other communities. It's created in the bigger cities. And it, what happens is it moves into the valley and it settles there and can't get out. So ultimately, we've got to do everything possible to reduce our over-reliance on uh, fossil fuels. Um, and that means we have to fix our transportation system so people don't have to number one. And two, we need to build affordable housing or housing that's affordable to the workforce closer to where they work so that they don't have to commute. Yeah, you know, that that is true in your area. By the way, Salinas has among the cleanest air in the nation. It's it's amazing. Um, But in the northern part of the valley, we do get some of the Bay Area. As you you go further down the valley, that's less of an impact as you go down the valley into into Bakersfield. Uh, But in the northern part of that where you are, that that, that is true. Um, Air quality, uh, big issue. Transportation, another big issue. What do you want to see done there? More investment in transportation for the Valley and overall for the state of California. And, uh, you know, I think that will significantly help with uh, the air quality so, so more in money. the Valley. So and more roads, multimodal, uh, more trains. What are we talking about? I mean, I think there, we need to, you know, kind of focus on this on this Central Valley a little bit more. We don't really have the uh, uh, transportation infrastructure that we that we need, right? So you like see other parts. Ninety-nine, a six-lane road. It's a little bit of everything, right? We need mm-hmm. to, we need to work on the roads. We need to, uh, you know, have uh, light rail system. We Do I even ask you about high-speed rail? <laughs> <laughs> Do you, want you can ask me about that. Okay, let me, what do you sure. mean, let me just tell rail? you that the, the, the high-speed rail is um, has is a great um, addition to the valley. 
and we're mm-hmm. going to need to hook it up to every system possible. But mm-hmm. here's, here's my, so I support high-speed rail. I think it's the way to go. Uh, but here's the challenge, mm-hmm. is that we need to take our greenhouse gas dollars and create opportunities to do public transportation into the suburbs and into rural California. We've been completely cut out of, of receiving those, those funds. Mm-hmm. It, for good reasons. You put them where there's a, a big population right. mass. But until you start mm-hmm. including us in that whole system, then we're not, we feel like we're, mm-hmm. we're left out of the picture and that we're, it's not important to the state. Uh, let me switch gears again to you, I, and we're doing a lot of topics. Let's talk about the, the tax system. Mm-hmm. Notoriously volatile in California, over-reliance on maybe capital gains of the very rich. Is there a revenue-neutral compromise that could be struck to kind of make the tax system a little less volatile? I think there probably is. Um, it's going to be uh, hard to reach uh, because mm-hmm. everybody has a, takes advantage right. of the tax credits. That's that they mine. Can. Yeah, yes, don't attack and they're, mine. They're, they're used to it. They right. like it. Anytime right. you make a change to the tax system, um, it's going to make people uncomfortable. But here's, here's the challenge is we have a bunch of tax credits for the business community. And quite frankly, it's not really clear um, th- exactly who gets it and how much they get. And I think we need to look at all of that because some of our big corporations may be getting tax credits. You, know, you, you, you make an interesting point, and the LAO has actually done a report on, on tax credits, um, which I encourage people to, you know, take mm-hmm. a look at the LAO reports or the PPIC or, or the state auditor. Got some interesting stuff there. Um, tax issues. Compromise? I think we need to take a look at it, and we should come to a compromise if there's so an option available. So let me, yeah. let me ask a follow-up. Assuming that no one party has a monopoly on good ideas, how do you allow for the Republicans who are in the super minority right now to come to the table and, and kind of put forward their ideas? I, I feel like they, they, should come, they should come no matter what. I mean, I think I personally have an open door policy. And if, you know, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Let's work together and let's make it happen. But, um, you know, we need to make sure that it's not just, you know, two or three that we have a whole. What do you think about, about the idea that, you know, allowing for this loyal opposition? Because, you know, they may have good ideas yeah. from time to time. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly... In, in our region, we've started to meet on a bipartisan basis to talk about some of the priorities that we have for the district so that we can work together on them. Well, that's, that's, that's really where I think we're going to get um, some successes. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. We'll leave it on that note. I want to thank our, <laughs> our guests, um, State Senator uh, Caballero and State Senator Hurtado, um, and as well as State Senator Andres Borges. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for The Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.